Hello and welcome to the Hoover Institution's 2019 Desert Conference. I'm Chris Dower, Hoover's Director of Marketing and Strategic Communications. Our speaker in this podcast is Clint Bullock, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution. The title of his talk is The Supreme Court in Transition, What Issues Are in Play? And it was recorded on March 25th, 2019. Well, what a delight to be here in Indian Wells, uh, and especially <clears throat> as an Arizonan, I get to see what weather is going to be like tomorrow. So I'm excited to be able to live this weather twice in two days. Um, I almost didn't make it, though. Uh, one of the things, I love being a judge, but one of the things that happens when you become a judge is that you give up the opportunity to engage in civil disobedience. You know, I don't even get to go much over the speed limit anymore. I have to use my turn signals, all that stuff. <clears throat> Excuse me. So yesterday, I don't know what it was, but I was feeling really feisty before I set out to, to come to California. And I said, you know what? I am going to smuggle contraband into the state of California. And you know, my wife was running an errand. She wasn't there to do her usual thing, which is to talk me out of bad ideas. Put it in the suitcase, managed to get through TSA. Everything seems to be totally fine. I'm feeling really, uh, really good about this. And then I get to California, and I look at the list. You know, It says, welcome to California. The following items are prohibited. And this item is number one on the list. It's before firearms and explosives. I'm like, oh my gosh, maybe I, I, I should not have done this. And then, then I see the dogs. And I've read an article about how the, the dogs in California have been repurposed away from sniffing out drugs to sniffing out precisely what it was that I was carrying on my person. So I'm sweating profusely, and I managed to get past the dogs. I don't know how, uh, how they did not catch me. And I have to say, I hope that no one in this room will turn me in, uh, because I brought it actually with me today. Uh, and <clears throat> that is a plastic straw, ladies and gentlemen. If I'm feeling really like a risk taker, I may bring this out at lunchtime today. <laughs> Seriously, I want to welcome all of you, and I want to thank Hoover for, for hosting me today and also providing me for, with an ongoing forum. Uh, when Governor Ducey appointed me to the court uh, a little over three years ago, um, he said, I have one thing to ask of you. And I said, what's that? And he said, I hope that you will continue writing and speaking as much as possible. And I cannot write or speak for organizations that appear before me. And so it's just so fantastic to be able to, uh, to write and speak with an organization like the Hoover Institution uh, and to, to be a part of the incredible uh, team of scholars that you all make possible. So I, I want to thank you from the beginning of my, from the, from the bottom of my heart. Seven years ago, when Barack Obama was running for, uh, uh, for re-election, actually, I guess it was, uh, uh, yeah, that, that's about right. Uh, I wrote a book for Hoover called Twofer, Electing a President and a Supreme Court. And in that book, I argued 
that the most important issue uh, in terms of electing a president was not the hot and button issues that we all think about, abortion, immigration, trade, uh, taxes, and those sorts of things, but rather the most important consideration in electing a president is who that president will appoint to the United States Supreme Court. And the, the basis for uh, that viewpoint was really four factors. First of all, uh, the, the appointments to the United States Supreme Court, Court are the most enduring legacy that a president will have. His, his or her appointments will far outlast the president. Just think about it, the recent, relatively recent retirement of Justice Anthony Kennedy. Kennedy was appointed by President Reagan. You know, I know we all remember President Reagan very, very fondly, but there's not a lot that, that we can point to today uh, that he set, uh, uh, set in motion and, and that survived him uh, completely intact. Um, but the average Supreme Court justice now serves for roughly 30 years, nearly eight presidential terms, so these appointments are so very important. Even if a president does not make a single Supreme Court justice, and there have been presidents who have not been able to make any, each president will name roughly one quarter of all of the judges on the rest of the federal courts. So this is incredibly important. Judges tend to stay very true to their judicial philosophies. Uh, even if the presidents uh, uh, violate their own principles, usually the judges will stay true to the judicial philosophies of the president who appointed them. And for all of those reasons, uh, even the most moderate Republican president will appoint judges uh, that have a more conservative philosophy than even the most moderate Democratic president will. So the, uh, uh, this, this is very, very significant for the, um, uh, for the, the, the future of our country in terms of, of who we're uh, seeing appointed to the United States Supreme Court. Now, I would like to tell you that this book, Twofer, became an instant bestseller on the New York Times list. But if I did tell you that, I would be telling you a whopping lie. Um, this did not become a big issue in the presidential race between John McCain and Barack Obama. Um, but, but several years later, four years after that election, it did become a significant issue. And uh, obviously, Barack Obama went on to appoint a lot of judges and Supreme Court justices with a liberal judicial philosophy. And certainly, no matter whether you love him, hate him, or somewhere in between, uh, whatever you can say about President Donald Trump, he has made very, very consequential appointments to the United States Supreme Court. And is, of course, as, as we read every single day, appointing uh, more and more judges to the, uh, to the lower federal courts. Um, specifically, with regard to the U.S. Supreme Court, obviously he appointed uh, Justice Neil Gorsuch uh, first to the United States Supreme Court. And I have to say, uh, I am crazy about Neil Gorsuch. I like to say that we were separated at birth um, by 10 years, and he got the height gene. Um, but seriously, I, I just think he's phenomenal. But Gorsuch replaced 
a guy who was one of the most impressive people that we've ever had serve on the Supreme Court, Antonin Scalia. And as a result, the appointment of Gorsuch did not really shift the philosophical balance of, of the Supreme Court. I think what we can say about Gorsuch is that he is every bit a worthy successor uh, to, to the man that he succeeded and, and the very large shoes that he had to fill. But replacing Justice Kennedy with Justice Kavanaugh may make a, a very, very significant um, difference. And so my comments today are really addressed on forecasting what some of those changes will or will not likely be. And in doing this, I have to be somewhat circumspect, although part of my job is to enforce the free speech rights of others. As a judge, I have fewer free speech rights than anyone in this room. Uh, and that is because uh, our code of judicial ethics forbids us, among other things, from commenting on, on specific ongoing cases. And as a result, what I plan to do is to look at general broad categories and suggest how Justice Kavanaugh's replacement of Justice Kennedy might affect these issues in a big way. When I do that, I begin with two very significant caveats. The first is that it is possible that Chief Justice Roberts, who generally speaking has been a very conservative justice with one major exception related to the topic that we just heard about, um, he may be moving to the middle. And uh, so I am going to assume for purposes of my forecast that his, his decisions in prior cases will be similar, if not the same as his position in, in future cases. And the second um, is to assume that Justice Kavanaugh is as conservative as his supporters uh, hoped he was. Now, if either of those uh, assumptions turns out to be wrong, then my forecast will also turn out to be wrong. Uh, but I think that for the most part, these are both conservative justices and that the five to four uh, conservative majority that existed before uh, Justice Scalia passed away and Justice Kennedy retired um, will be a more robust five to four majority on most issues. Now first, one of the big differences that's going to, going to happen, and this is definitely going to happen, is that the court is going to change just by virtue of Justice Kennedy not being there anymore. Because Justice Kennedy was not only the swing vote uh, deciding, really tilting the balance in almost every major five to four decision. But he was a very, very unusual justice in the following way. Generally speaking, right now, in uh, the cases that are before the US Supreme Court, most conservatives adhere to a judicial philosophy of either textualism or originalism, and these are very, very closely related. What textualism means, and I consider myself an, an ardent uh, textualist, what textualism means is that when you're interpreting the Constitution or a statute, you read the words of the Constitution or the statute, and you do your best to implement the meaning of those words. 
And you don't, if, you don't go beyond those words unless their meaning is entirely unclear. And an originalist, um, which is, I, I would say, textualism is a subset of originalism. An, originalism. an originalist will try to figure out what the people who wrote the words meant by those words and enforce the original meaning. Now, that doesn't mean uh, uh, that the Constitution doesn't apply to new circumstances. For example, the First Amendment there was no internet, of course, when, when the framers put the First Amendment together. But you take the meaning of those words and you try to apply them to modern uh, circumstances. And most conservatives are textualists or originalists or, or some combination of, of the two. Most liberal judges adhere to a, 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 a form of judicial interpretation called living constitutionalism. And that generally, and this is an oversimplification, but generally they believe that the meaning of the Constitution, the meaning of those words, changes with time. And I'll, I'll actually talk about some specific examples. Now, there are some liberals who are textualists. For example, Justice Kagan um, uh, styles herself a textualist and a, and a and, and uh, behaves like a textualist in many instances. That doesn't mean, just because you are a textualist doesn't mean that you agree with every other textualist. Some people can see the exact same words and interpret them differently, but she, she calls herself a textualist. There are almost no conservatives who are living constitutionalists, with one exception, Anthony Kennedy. Anthony Kennedy was a justice who voted with the conservatives the vast majority of time, but believed fervently that the meaning of the Constitution changed with the times. And when you read his decision, for example, in a case like Obergefell, the, the gay marriage case, um, he doesn't talk about the language of the Constitution or the meaning of the Constitution, but things like the mystery of the cosmos and an individual's right to self-determination and all sorts of things that many of us might applaud. You know, the right to, to, the right to dignity, for example, was a huge part of Justice Kennedy's uh, jurisprudence. And I love dignity. I, I feel like I have it. I, I hope all of you have dignity and I honor it. I just don't find it in the Constitution, but Justice Kennedy did. And so, and the liberals empowered Justice Kennedy to implement this philosophy because every time there was a five to four decision in which Justice Kennedy agreed with the liberals, the liberals would let Justice Kennedy write the decision and he could write it any way that he wanted to and they were just gonna sign on to that decision. So this is going to change. We no longer have a conservative adherent to the, the view of, of living constitutionalism. And that alone, I think, will make our jurisprudence more bound to the text of the Constitution and the meaning of the Constitution uh, because we do not have a member of the, of the rough conservative majority who believes in living constitutionalism. So uh, I wanted to go over eight 
areas uh, that hopefully are most of which will be of interest to you in which the court will either probably not change or probably change uh, with the uh, substitution of Justice Kennedy with Justice Kavanaugh. The first area where I think it's easiest to predict that the court will not change is the very topic that we just uh, uh, were considering in the last session, and that's Obamacare. Uh, even though I suspect that both Kavanaugh and Gorsuch would vote to overturn uh, Obamacare, Roberts was the swing vote in that case. Kennedy actually sided with the conservative minority that wanted to overturn Obamacare, and Roberts was the swing vote. Um, it's very hard to explain that vote, um, uh, and when you get into the technicalities of it, it becomes even harder to explain. Uh, but, but Chief Justice Roberts is very concerned with the institutional integrity of the court, um, and sometimes that may lead him uh, to take a more, uh, a more liberal perspective on things, but certainly there are not the votes, uh, in my estimation, to, to overturn Obamacare. The same is likely true for Roe versus Wade. And the reason that Roe versus Wade will probably not be overturned is not that the composition of the court has, has not changed. And I think that Kavanaugh will be much more conservative on the abortion issue than was his predecessor. But rather the principle of stare decisis. And this is, uh, I, I, I try to use Latin as rarely as I possibly can. Um, and uh, I think most lawyers use Latin because otherwise they can't justify charging you five or $600 an hour. Um, but uh, stare decisis is the principle that the law evolves in a predictable way and that precedents should be honored, generally speaking, by subsequent courts. And, that, and the reason for that is because people come to rely on the law that the courts are developing. In an abortion uh, case several years ago called Planned, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, it looked like Roe versus Wade was going to be overturned. And three justices, Kennedy, O'Connor, uh, and Souter, voted to uphold the right to abortion from Roe versus Wade. And the argument that they made was that once someone has come to rely on a particular liberty, in this case, the freedom to obtain an abortion, the court should be very reluctant to overturn that. If, if, it's, if it's a wrong decision that people don't have a reliance on in their day-to-day -day lives, it's, it's less uh, 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 disadvantageous to overturn it. Um, and for that reason, for that reason, I don't think that a majority of the court will vote to overturn Roe versus Wade. What will happen is that greater restrictions on abortion will probably be upheld. Again, if just Chief Justice Roberts maintains his position from the past. So more restrictions will be uh, tolerated by the court, but not an overturning of, uh, of Roe versus Wade. Wade. The third area where I don't think that we'll see um, an overturning is the case that I mentioned earlier 
uh, Obergefell and the, uh, uh, the right that the court, a majority of the court recognized to gay marriage. And in this instance, Chief Justice Roberts in that case wrote the most vehement dissent that I've ever seen him write. I mean, he really thought that this was the court doing two things that were illegitimate. One, reading a right into the Constitution that neither the language of the Constitution nor the history of, of American culture uh, uh, would produce. Um, and second of all, he thought that the court was getting out in front of democratic processes. He said, you know what? The states are already doing this one by one. We ought to leave this to the democratic processes. And he did not mince words in saying that. Having said that, and, and believing that, uh, that Justice Kavanaugh will also be conservative, I don't see the court overturning that decision, even though a majority probably would not have voted for that decision in the first place, for precisely the same reason that I just articulated for Roe versus Wade. There now are tens of thousands of gay marriages uh, that have occurred in the country, and I don't see the US Supreme Court upending that at this point. Having said that, I do think that the court is going to go in a direction that will impact that area, and that's the fourth area, and this may be the one area in which having Justice Kavanaugh on the court will make the biggest difference, and that is the area of religious liberty and religious establishment. As you know, the First Amendment protects religious liberty on the, first, on, the, on the one hand and prohibits the establishment of religion on the other. And uh, all of you, I'm sure, were following uh, the Masterpiece uh, uh, Bake Shop case that was before the United States Supreme Court that asked the question, if someone has a religious objection to serving uh, gay couples, can the government for, uh, force them to do that? And the court, in a five to four decision, overturned the conviction of a bake shop uh, that refused to, to provide a custom wedding cake uh, for a gay couple. And, uh, but they did it on the narrowest of grounds. Um, and Justice Kennedy wrote that decision and he said, you know what, um, the commission that was in charge of enforcing this law had an anti-religious bias. And uh, as a result, this was impermissible. But this question is, is raging in, in federal courts around the country. Um, and I, I think that Kavanaugh, um, his judicial philosophy is most well-developed in the area of religion. Um, and he is a, a very, uh, a very conservative judge when it comes to religious issues. My guess is that the next time a case like that comes up to the US Supreme Court, uh, the court will say, yes, gay people have the right to marry, but so too is there an associational interest um, for people who choose not, or a religious interest for people who choose not to uh, uh, to engage in commerce or, or other types um, of activity. On the, in the area of religious establishment, um, Tom in his very nice uh, introduction of me mentioned that I litigated uh, the school choice case, the Cleveland school choice case 
uh, in front of the United States Supreme Court. And that was, uh, yet again, a five to four decision. Um, and the dissenters in that case who wanted to strike down the voucher program, they predicted that that, the, that case would set off religious strife in our country of the magnitude of Bosnia and Northern Ireland. And I'm not exaggerating when I say that they, they did predict that. Uh, obviously, that has not happened. And school choice programs uh, have blossomed uh, all around the country uh, in, in different forms. But uh, if, if, uh, if, a, if a Democratic president had been able to appoint another Supreme Court justice, I suspect that that precedent would have fallen, uh, that school choice would be declared unconstitutional because of the vehemence of, of the liberals in that context. There has been an issue that has been looming in the background, um, and it's an issue of state constitutional law called the Blaine Amendments. And these are amendments that are found in like two-thirds of the state constitutions, including California's, that say no money, uh, no public money can be used for the aid or benefit of sectarian schools. And you hear that and you say, oh, well, that means no money can go to religious schools. These amendments trace their genesis to the late 19th century um, and to a, a very virulent movement of anti-Catholicism because uh, Catholic immigrants were moving to the country and guess what, starting their own schools. The public schools at the time were Protestant schools. If you went to school, in all likelihood, you would have a minister teaching you. So it wasn't about money going to religion, it was about money going to that religion. And uh, about two thirds of the states adopted these provisions and the question has arisen repeatedly, can one of these Blaine Amendments at the state level be used to discriminate against religious schools? In other words, you have uh, a, a school choice program and you can use your money to go to private schools, uh, you can use your money to go to charter schools, um, but you can't use them for religious schools. And we had a case come to the United States Supreme Court, a case called Trinity Lutheran a couple of years ago, and we thought that that was the issue that was being prevented. It dealt with a Missouri law that allowed uh, public funds for playground equipment. And the question, uh, basically, you could get money for your school playground if you were a private non-religious school, a public school, a charter school, any kind of school, but you couldn't get it if you were at a religious school. And so the argument was made to the US Supreme Court, this is discrimination against religion. And the court struck down the Missouri law. And you would think, well, that means you can't discriminate against religious schools. But as I teach, I teach uh, constitutional law at ASU Law School, as I teach my students, the devil is often in the footnotes. And sure enough, there's a footnote in this case, I kid you not, that says, this opinion relates only to playground equipment. No other category, right? Why would you decide a, a case in the US Supreme Court that applies only to playground equipment? 
In any event, what that means is that that issue remains alive. And this is an issue where I think that Justice Kavanaugh will be <clears throat> likely to side against religious discrimination, whereas Kennedy came out that way in that particular case, but he put that footnote in the opinion, and so uh, we have to wait for another day. <clears throat> A fifth area of significant consequence is the area of criminal law. The death penalty has been on life support, I hate to mix my metaphors like that, for many, many years now. I mean, it even got to the point, and this is how big of a nerd I am, uh, I was putting together a pool uh, in, my, in my gym, among other nerds, as to what day the US Supreme Court would strike down uh, capital punishment. And uh, then Donald Trump gets elected, then uh, Kavanaugh and uh, Gorsuch are appointed, and that is no longer the case. Now, obviously, here in California, uh, the governor has declared a moratorium on, on the death penalty, um, but, uh, uh, but for now, uh, the death penalty remains alive and well. But this was another area where Justice Kennedy sometimes uh, engaged in, in living constitutionalism. And there was one case in particular that we, we had a similar case come to my court and reading the US Supreme Court precedents absolutely drove me crazy. In fact, to the point where, although obviously we have to enforce US Supreme Court precedents, I wrote a concurring opinion that was very, very critical of this. This was in the area of juvenile homicide, not a homicide against juveniles, but juveniles, 15, 16, 17-year-olds, uh, engaging in, in particularly heinous and, and brutal murders. And years ago, the US Supreme Court declared that if you're a juvenile, if you're 17 years, 364 days old, and you commit a murder, you cannot be sentenced to death. Then the Supreme Court said uh, in another decision that you also, if you're a juvenile and you commit a murder, uh, you cannot be sentenced to, to lifetime without the possibility of parole unless, unless you were proved to be permanently incorrigible rather than, and I'll never forget this, uh, this, uh, this term, uh, rather than just transiently immature. And I, I, this just drove me crazy. I wrote in my concurring opinion, I said, transient immaturity is when my daughter slugs her big brother. It is not when someone commits a cold-blooded murder. So the court then, in a decision by Justice Kennedy, ruled that all of the cases where juveniles had, who had been given um, life without possibility of parole have to go back and reopen all of those cases and prove that at the time of the murder, the juvenile was permanently incorrigible and not simply transiently immature, which means going back and reopening cases that are 20, 30 years old, where the witnesses have died, the doctors who assessed the, the defendants are you know, long since retired. Um, and that wasn't it. Justice Kennedy, in this opinion, said, he said, when we go back and re-examine all of these cases, 
It is our intuition. And please, if I ever use the word intuition in an opinion, please like start impeachment proceedings against me. It is our intuition that in the vast majority of cases, it will be found that the killers were transiently immature and should not get the uh, uh, life without possibility of parole. This is what I mean by a living constitution where the words cruel and unusual become cruel or unusual and you get to strike down uh, a whole host of, of, of punishments. We, even if you agree with the outcome of, of that particular uh, uh, that particular case, the reasoning is just so elastic that you can use that kind of reasoning to, to reach whatever, whatever you want. I think that sort of case is really going to, to change. Three last areas uh, to, to discuss. And one, again, I think is, there's going to be quite a difference, and it is in the area of affirmative action. Um, as you know, an affirmative action case comes to the U.S. Supreme Court on a, on a regular basis. This dates back to before I was even in law school. Uh, I went to UC Davis, which was the, where uh, the Bakke case, the, the first of these cases, came in. And there's always been a push between those who would perpetuate racial preferences and those who would say, listen, our Constitution treats whites and blacks, men and women, the same and you cannot provide a, a, a preference on that purpose, on that basis. Justice Kennedy voted against racial preferences in dozens of cases. He voted against them every single case until the last one. And that was the most recent one involving the University of Texas, um, where uh, the, uh, even the New York Times said, there's almost no doubt this is going to be the death knell for racial preferences. They've got the votes that they need to overturn the Texas program. They're probably going to say our Constitution is colorblind. And Kennedy switched. He did not explain why he switched, um, and, uh, but he switched and, and upheld uh, that program. Um, I think there are probably five votes on the court now uh, to say, you know, we've been down this road, um, it's divisive, um, and uh, we, can, we can do different things uh, to enable people who are uh, educationally disadvantaged or don't have the same equivalent opportunities rather than dealing with it on the, on the basis of race. A seventh area, and this is one where Trump judges in general may have the biggest impact uh, of any area of the law, and this will not surprise any of you, it is the administrative state. And the uh, New York Times did a brilliant article, uh, I, I'm sorry, I've got to repeat those words because they're so hard to, hard to say and hard to believe. The New York Times did a brilliant article looking at all of the, uh, the Trump nominees to the courts to try to find the common denominator. And in a very insightful way, they said the common denominator is a skepticism of all of these nominees of the power of the administrative state. 
And if you know Trump and his personal uh, political agenda, this is not a surprise at all. The exemplar in this area is Justice Gorsuch. And first, I have to tell you what I mean uh, by this. There is a case that dates back appropriately enough to 1984 called the Chevron case. Uh, and you will sometimes hear uh, uh, lawyers talk about the Chevron doctrine. In this case, the court said, when we're interpreting a statute, we will defer to the administrative agency's interpretation of that statute. And as a result, the administrative state has grown dramatically because guess what? Most agencies interpret uh, statutes to give them less power or more power? <laughs> more power, of course. And this doctrine has really, has really been the nursemaid for, uh, for the administrative state. Justice Gorsuch, when he was Judge Gorsuch, wrote an opinion uh, for the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals in which he, um, uh, he ruled that a particular agency interpretation was not correct. But then he did something that I had never seen in a judicial opinion before and which I am totally jealous of and which I totally plan to emulate. After writing the majority opinion, he wrote a concurring opinion, concurring with himself. This is awesome because, you know, I generally agree with myself too, so why, why shouldn't I write some more? But it was an amazing decision, and I think it may have been that decision that catapulted him to the United States Supreme Court because he said, this is the elephant in the room is the Chevron decision. It is for courts to interpret statutes, not administrative agencies, not unelected people who are accountable to no one except the people who appointed them, and in some instances, especially in the context of independent agencies, not even accountable to them. We need to overturn the Chevron Doctrine, we need to repudiate it, and we need to get courts back in the business of doing what they are constitutionally supposed to do, which is to interpret uh, the law. A number of other judges holding similar philosophies, and I believe Kavanaugh is one of them, have been appointed. Most recently, a former law clerk of mine, who some of you may have heard about, Naomi Rao, uh, who was appointed to the DC Circuit, um, that is the court from which people go to the U.S. Supreme Court most often. And what was Naomi's job before she was appointed to the court? She was Trump's regulatory czar. And of course, in the case of this administration, that meant getting rid of regulations, not getting, uh, getting new regulations. So I think that this is going to be an area where... Um, uh, where there's going to be significant impact. And, my, and the, the one that I saved for last uh, is perhaps my own personal favorite, and that is the area of private property rights, and in particular, the issue of eminent domain, which is also an issue that I uh, litigated back at the Institute for Justice. And in fact, 
one of the people that my colleagues and I litigated against in the eminent domain context was none other than the current president of the United States, Donald Trump. Back when he was a casino owner in Atlantic City and he owned a casino, he wanted a parking lot for his limousines and wanted to use eminent domain to take the property away from an elderly uh, widow and a little Italian restaurant named Sabatini's. And being from New Jersey, I take my Italian restaurants very, very seriously. In any event, <clears throat> This, this area is one that illustrates a point that I made at the very beginning of my remarks, and that is that judges tend to stay true to their judicial philosophy even when the presidents who appoint them may not. Um, this issue went up uh, before the United States Supreme Court in a case called Kelo versus City of New London. Many of you, probably most of you, are familiar with this. This was uh, the case in which um, the city of New London bulldozed an entire working class neighborhood to make way for a Pfizer plant. And the US Supreme Court, by a five to four vote, with Kennedy voting in the majority, O'Connor voting in dissent, um, upheld the eminent domain. And they looked at the Fifth Amendment and they said that the requirement that uh, eminent domain be used for public use, well, that had changed. What they really, what it really meant was public benefit. And if you think about it, public benefit and public use, they sound the same. They are about as different as can possibly be. And so a majority of the Supreme Court uh, said uh, this was for a public benefit and therefore it was okay. When Trump ran for president, he took a very unpopular position and he said, I love the Kelo decision, I think it's a fantastic decision. Um, however, I believe he has appointed the two justices that are necessary to overturn the Kelo decision. And that, I think, uh, if that in fact happens, it will of course be incredibly ironic, but I also think that it will be a vindication for something very important in this country, and that is the rule of law, that we have judges who will look at the Constitution, and, it, and they're not partisan hacks. They are people who ver take their constitutional oath very, very seriously, and they will interpret the words the way they believe uh, they should be interpreted, regardless of the president who appoints them. So long as we have judges who believe in the rule of law and believe in the Constitution, we will be a country uh, that has a very, very strong stake in the preservation of freedom. Thank you so much for, for having me today. Thank you. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, Podbean, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.